This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone once again. Welcome to the program. We're doing identity politics this week, the scourge of conservative culture warriors. But as my guest today is going to demonstrate, you don't have to be a conservative culture warrior to take a critical view of identity politics. Indeed, a deconstructive view, which is maybe a little surprising given that philosophical strategies like deconstruction are often seen as emerging from the same Pandora's box of evils that contains identity politics. So what does it mean to take a deconstructive approach. And for that matter, what does it mean to talk about identity politics in the first place? The term is generally used to refer to any political strategy that involves people of a particular class or race or religion or social group identifying and organising themselves on the basis of the oppression that they've experienced as a result of those group identities. My guest today is Carolyn De Cruz, and she's Senior Lecturer in Gender, Sexuality and Diversity Studies at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Carolyn, welcome to you. And uh, I want to begin by talking about the purported divisiveness of identity politics in this country. There's this complaint that we often hear that once upon a time, we all agreed on Australia as a unifying concept, whereas today... We just have little subgroups with their own claims and their own demands. So instead of Australians, we have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, and we have LGBTQI Australians and immigrant Australians, and everyone's trying to get recognition and justice for their own little group, and it's all very fragmented and very divisive. What do you make of that claim? Well, for a start, I don't believe that we've been hearing from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that we agree that we're all Australian. I think if we've been listening, sovereignty has never been ceded. And so at the very beginning of what gets named as the Federation of Australia, that is what made the division. The division doesn't lie within all those have, who have been marginalised by the establishment of the nation state the division lies in the very establishment of the nation state and claiming its commonality at the very same time in which it creates all of these divisions. So the divisions don't come from the margin. The divisions come from the side of what's established as the mainstream under the guise of neutrality and commonality. And the way in which we um, get to learn about ourselves is through an emptying out of the history that belongs to these categories. So we learn that we, you know, we're just born uh, with a gender or with a race or with a sexuality. And that's simply not true when we have a look at the way in which the classifications of different types of people have been tied to actual power struggles in history. So there's never been a time where we all agree that we live in this commonwealth, <laughs> which we are supposedly um, a part of. Um, it's just that certain voices have been more dominant than others. And I think we're living in a time where those who have been excluded are gaining more audibility in the public sphere and more conservative and small L liberal people are getting a little bit uneasy about that because they're losing their own centrality. There's a certain sector of the electorate, though, isn't there, that is turned off by identity politics. And 
There was a much-quoted article in the New York Times after the um, presidential election in, in the US in 2016 saying that Hillary Clinton lost because the Democrats had become enslaved to the politics of difference, to identity politics, rather than to a, a national politics of commonality. And I've heard that same sentiment echoed with respect to Labor and the Greens in Australia, that, that identity politics is electoral poison. Do you think that there's some truth in that? I think we've got to look at what electoral politics is. And I think electoral politics is where the poison lies. Okay, so Hillary Clinton, if you like, we want to go to Mark Miller's um, famous op-ed after the 2016 election. She ran a campaign like she was in HR, or the Democrats do, and they still do. They treat identity as if it is an HR issue. If we just were more inclusive, it's very uh, rhetoric oriented rather than looking at, you know, structures. So when we're already in the zone of electoral politics, the privileging of the nation state is something that is already assumed in that, okay? So I think that's actually where the problem lies and it's the the constraints of how electoral politics has to work and what people assume about democracy for me is where the actual issue and problem lies. And it's no surprise that it gets read that way because we don't learn to think of the histories attached to the identities that someone like Hillary Clinton is talking about or any electoral politics in nation states that call themselves democracies, for instance, will try and think about, well, how do we appeal to these interest groups? Appealing to interest groups is not what these actual interest groups, as they get called, are talking about, mm. okay? Um, it, it's not about something like, you know, being recognised. It's actually something like, how are we going to deal with the issue of sovereignty? Can we talk about treaties here, for instance, if we're talking about, you know, the lands that we're on? And uh, the same would be, I think, in the 2016 election Um it's the grid in which we were all given to understand this stuff that is the problem um, rather than the people who got blamed for dividing the nation state. There's also that close connection between the personal and the political that we see in identity politics. And, of course, one of the central claims of, of left-wing politics in general, but particularly feminist politics since the late 1960s, has been that the personal is the political. And we see that very strongly in, in various forms of identity politics, but you're not entirely, you, you're not, you haven't bought into that all the way, have you? You're looking to complicate that formulation. Yeah, I think sometimes the political gets overly personal and I'd like to shout out to uh, Yasmin Nair who writes from Chicago, who, who writes very well on that. So if you can follow um, her work on Twitter, you'll get a better critique than I can give you now. But yes, I'd like to first say I do think the personal and political is political is an important slogan because that's the sort of thing that allowed us to put things like domestic violence on the agenda of being a public issue and so on. I think that the political has got overly personal in that people expect to hear problems about structures of oppression only in personal and traumatic terms. And that takes the emphasis away on how we might transform these structures of oppression. So, yes, I do have a problem with over-personalising 
the political to the extent that there's now this demand um, for us to speak in terms that is about the self rather than what's going on for the identity category or, you know, the political social movements that we get attached to. Another point I've heard you make about identity politics, and I think it's a really interesting point, is that it often asks us to look at the politics of things like race and citizenship and sexual difference and so on, as though all these things are grounded in discrete and neatly definable categories. And I'd ask you then, what points would you make about identities in general and the ways in which they're actually constituted? I think this is the problem going back to your question about the 2016 um, election in the US is that identities do get treated like they are this discrete things as if it is an HR problem. You know, I think that's the biggest problem with identity politics as if we're always talking about diversity and inclusion. But I think if we turn our eyes to how identities are cultivated, right, and in this point of time, you know, how we're inheriting the formation of nation states and this one in particular as being invested in creating a white Australia, okay, by dispossessing land. Already we're in a zone where you have to use gender and sexuality to regulate race, the race nation, right, that this federation wanted. If we look at history as well, we, you know, that there are plenty of examples of like the way in which the mentally ill are treated, the way in people with disabilities are treated, the way in which prisoners are treated. And all of these categories of identity are actually tied to what French thinker uh, Michel Foucault would call like the biopolitical state, the regulation, the monitoring and the surveillance of body in different space and time. So what we're seeing actually is a co-constitution of identities. You don't get white without a black other, okay? You know, you, you need these binary oppositions to work and they are working co-constitutively with others in the way in which nation states develop preferred forms of citizenship. So that's a lot of messy historical detail that we need to fill in to the surfaces of these ridiculous, I keep saying HR policies because that's my particular beef with identity at its worst. Well, you've done some really interesting work in putting deconstruction to work here. And of course, by deconstruction, I mean in the, in the specifically Derridean sense of the word. Philosophically speaking, what does deconstruction do that you find useful? It turns our attention to how we're always already thrown into the muck before we start studying it, okay? Um, that we can't attain the level of abstraction that a lot of philosophers really thrive upon. And so Derrida is really interested in dealing with that kind of mess and attending to the way in which any identity has to actually reckon with the difference that comes before it. So I'm very attracted to a kind of thinking that acknowledges that difference comes before identity. Okay, when identities become salient, it's because we're working through the muck of differences. 
Um, the other thing that I, I like about deconstruction is that it takes its aim from within whatever it's looking at, and you can look at absolutely anything. So it's it's a parasitic type of strategy of reading and writing where you're presented with a problem and then you inhabit that problem and you have a look at what's being privileged in that problem. You look at what that particular problem takes to be its grounding and its cornerstones. And the minute that you focus your gaze on these cornerstones, you see how wobbly they are. You see that these grounds are actually shifting grounds. And to work with those shifts in time and space, and that's what Derrida takes us to, the fact that we never begin or land with anything that is fixed changes the very way we think and write and read about everything. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, talking this week about identity politics with Carolyn de Cruz, who works in gender, sexuality and diversity studies at La Trobe University in Melbourne. She's also the author of a book that came out last year with the title Democracy Indifference, Debating Key Terms of Gender, Sexuality, Race and Identity. More on that coming up. Deconstruction speaks directly to identity, doesn't it? Because in analytic philosophical terms, identity is about metaphysics, first of all, the persistence of essential qualities within a thing, and also ontology, the question of being. But these are precisely what deconstruction deconstructs, particularly the metaphysics of presence, as Derrida calls it. Can we talk about that? What does the metaphysics of presence mean in the work that you're doing? It's the paradox we face um, when we say, as I've mentioned the shifting grounds of identity, right? So if I'm looking at, say, the history of sexuality, for instance, I'm still assuming that I know what I'm talking about when I use that word sexuality. So I cannot help but assume a presence for sexuality in the very engagement. I think Derrida calls it the perilous necessity of empiricism. Okay, but the minute I try to access then that ontological question of what is, what is sexuality, I get caught, okay, within both the metaphysics of presence or of assuming what I, I know what I'm talking about. But as I start looking, I start to see the, the fissures, the cracks, you know, the inability to actually settle on a presence, so we're always realising that, uh, I think the way he puts this is that we're always working between two absences, okay, of what has been, what's happened in the name of sexuality, and then what we might imagine sexuality might become. Um, so we're, <laughs> we're dealing with movement and that for analytical philosophers who like to work with ess- essences and nail things in the abstract um, doesn't work the minute that you try and deal with the reality and messiness of everyday life. 
It's problematic, isn't it, if you look at the, the point where the philosophy meets um, social practice or activism? Because it, it, it's like when we try to get to the essence of a particular identity, say, so the, the identity of woman in order to ground a social movement like feminism, we run into the problem of there being no stable foundation on which to ground that identity, right? Yeah, and I think that's a really good thing. Okay, I think the problem occurs when you try to fix the meaning of woman. So this is where uh, deconstruction is extremely affirmative, okay? On the one hand, you're saying yes to woman because that's the category that you're using. On the other hand, you've got to say yes again then to how you are going to deal with the instability of what has happened under the name of woman and what remains unsatisfactory with how the name of woman has been used. And that to me is very affirmative and it takes politics into the zone of not quite knowing where you're going. That's the other thing with deconstruction is you you don't quite know where you're going, which is an extremely valuable thing to learn for any sort of politics because the minute you think you know where you're going, you're calcifying, fixing something and, you know, heading towards a direction of quite totalitarian and dogmatic ways of thinking. Isn't this... Well, I was going to say useful, but isn't it? You know, isn't there a sense in which it's it's essential to know where you're going to at least have provisionally fixed identities or, or strategies built on identities, particularly in social justice movements like feminism? So, I think what we can say is, well, this is where we've been. This is what's happened in the name. These are the sorts of histories that are attached to the way in which we understand gender, and that tells us a lot about our present situation, okay? We don't want these things, okay? I certainly don't want a concept of woman that's trans-exclusionary, for instance, okay? I think we've learned enough about gender to be able to make a statement like that. So, in that sense, yes, I can say, okay, I've got some kind of sense of a direction of how I might be invested in this category. But it's this question again of what is when we nail it down to a ground that presumes that you can have this enduring essence. That's where I think we run into trouble. When we say this is exactly what woman is, this is exactly what democracy is, this is exactly what communism is. No, the world actually doesn't work like that. We've got to deal with what's happened in its name and and then think about the sorts of regulating ideals that we would like to take to that name to make it something more emancipatory, which um, is difficult to dis- define sometimes, but I think we define that kind of thing by saying, well, it's not that. Where does that leave the role of personal testimony then, if we can, if we can bring it back into the realm of the personal a little? That, that role of personal testimony in establishing the truth of lived experience, very important in emancipatory movements. Is the authority of testimony also highly unstable in the way that the self is? I don't think it's unstable to say this happened to me which is what a lot of testimony is, and particularly so when the testimonies aren't written into official history books. So I think, for instance, the testimonies that we got to read in the Bringing Them Home report about stolen generations on these lands 
is, you know, full of, you know, at least 1,500 people in those. And that's just a, a fraction of, of what people are talking about, of being able to say, hey, this happened. This is what happened to me. This is what happened to my family. I don't think that that's um, unstable in the same sense that we're talking here philosophically about how identity categories are unstable. So we've got to distinguish between lived experiences and then the means we have at our hands to understand and make intelligible those uh, lived experiences. They have a connection to one another. Now, for many years on these lands in the public sphere, some of those testimonies weren't intelligible because they were being suppressed, silenced, and they still had such a dominance of this missionary Western civilization view of hearing, you know, or, or not wanting to hear people's stories. So I think it's really important to actually emphasise the way in which testimonies have changed collective narratives of our understanding of what happens both to individuals and then the social groups that they belong to. I don't think that's necessarily undermining what we then go on to complicate about identity as a social category. Well, Carol, you've written this wonderful book titled Democracy Indifference, which uh, we'll put publication details of on the website. And uh, it's a wonderful experiential read. It's an e-book with interactive elements like music links that expand on the content. But the content itself is structured something like a dictionary or maybe a glossary of, of key terms in the kinds of debates we've been talking about. What was it that led you to write a book like this that primarily aims to build a vocabulary rather than advance an argument? Although, of course, it does that as well. Yeah, um, it's in the tradition of Raymond Williams's keywords book, which, you know, was gold to me as an undergraduate and coming into languages that I didn't understand. And one of the things he asks in his book is like, you often have conversations with people where you get the sense that you're actually speaking a different language. Okay, we might be speaking English to one another, but I don't understand what you're saying. You don't understand what I'm saying. And this was my first six weeks of university experience, you know. It was my experience of high school as well when everybody knew what democracy was. I didn't. Um, I'm actually quite proud of that today because I think I was onto something. Uh, when we argue about these things, not having a shared vocabulary is actually where I see a lot of the problem arising. And so when we're speaking across different disciplines, we often don't stop to say, hang on, your understanding of gender is actually completely different to the way in which I understand gender. But we're having this argument that assumes we're both talking about the same thing. And so this book is trying to widen the desire to think about the words and the terms that we're using when we're talking to each other so that we might think about the question of whether we're starting on the same page because so many people are talking about identity politics today but they very rarely reflect upon how that's being used and, and very rarely reflect upon how they accuse the wrong people of causing division and playing cards of identity and so on. So, yeah, this is like an intervention, if you like, of hitting that pause button and say, can we 
go back a few steps first. It's what uh, Foucault would call doing some negative work first before we begin to have this discussion. I think it's really important that we do that. Well, I just want to finish up by uh, returning to the personal and uh, asking you if I can be cheeky enough to do so. Where are you in all of this? Because you've, you've spoken about your own ambivalence concerning identity and identity politics and the ways in which writing and talking about this can take you to places where you don't entirely like going. Can you tell me more about that ambivalence? What's, what's the issue there for you? That's a really cheeky question, David. Um, <laughs> well, the whole um, thing about identity politics and why I wrote the PhD I did in the 90s is because I felt I was asked too often personal questions about myself rather than the knowledge I had to share with people. And that was entirely based on the way in which people were reading me. And I don't think that's a fair thing to do to people. So I wrote my um, PhD in trying to look for a politics that would get us out of this obsession of people having to constantly disclose who they are. And so when I wrote my PhD, which got converted into a book in um, 2008, 10 years later after the PhD, I wrote in a way that was holding all of my cards to my chest, so to speak. I didn't think it was anybody's business to know who I am. And the irony of that is that all of that knowledge actually landed me in the job of, like, you know, being a lecturer in uh, gender sexuality and diversity studies. And this area of study now is based on identities, if you like. So thinking I was trying to find a politics to get out of this, I ended up working in an area that's completely can't avoid talking about identity. I do like to avoid talking about my personal identity. I think if you read my work, you'll probably get to know a little bit more um, about me. But I'm still, I'm still, yeah, like you say, I'm very ambivalent about what I want to disclose when I write. Uh, there's enough out there in the public sphere to work it out for yourself. So I would actually say, you know, read my work rather than ask me directly. And Or, you know, if you get to have a beer with me someday, that, that's probably when I'm much more comfortable about talking about myself. But to be quite honest with you, I'm really uncomfortable about talking about my own identity markers, even though I have um, in my work, but I, I usually like to avoid it. Well, maybe your inbox will now be flooded with people inviting you out for a beer to talk about more of it, in which case I, I can only apologise. But um, Carol de Cruz, it's been great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And Carolyn de Cruz is Senior Lecturer in Gender, Sexuality and Diversity Studies at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Her book is Democracy Indifference debating key terms of gender, sexuality, race and identity. It's an e-book. You can find it online and we're going to put publication details on the website. That's The Philosopher's Zone and you can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. And uh, I'm just going to mention as well that if you're interested in reading more about identity politics, there's a really interesting essay available on the ABC Religion and Ethics website about feminism. 
and about what happens to feminist issues and feminist social practice when the whole thing gets individualised and women start policing each other instead of asking questions about institutional systems and structures of oppression. It's a great read and that's another link that we'll put on the Philosopher's Zone website. We also have a lavish back catalogue of programs going all the way back to 2005. They're all available to stream or download, so get in there and do some digging around. It's a very rich philosophical archive and it's all there for you. Thanks for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. You can find me on Twitter at David P Zone, and you can also find me right here on the program again next week. See you then. Thank you.